Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all here again this morning. I uh, got to tell you, it was a very uh, eventful weekend in our home. I don't know what it was like in your house, but uh, we had more family in town this weekend, which we have truly loved having them here. And yet at the same time, uh, I was found, found myself, as always, surrounded with a house full of women. And so by God's grace through prayer, God delivered his sovereign hand by giving me football last night. And so I was able to redeem a little of my time this weekend, and I was thankful for that. So um, I don't know how many of you may have caught any of the game last night. I have never watched two football teams named Austin P and Central Arkansas play football, but I got to tell you, I was probably the most invested in sports I have been since ESPN The Ocho released the Great Marble Race. And so uh, it was just good to see sports uh, back on, particularly sports that you love and enjoy. So anyway, don't know how your weekend went. That's how mine was, and that's how mine's going so far. Again, it is so good to see you all. Uh, We are here wrapping up our series in Titus today. And as you know, we are going to move from Titus into uh, 1 Timothy to be followed by 2 Timothy. This is our series that we are calling Letters from the Pastor. Now, clearly, these are Paul's writings uh, to Titus, also to Timothy that we will see. But clearly, with both Timothy and Titus, Paul is writing to uh, two very young pastors who find themselves in uh, what could be argued as very young and yet challenging churches and church situations. And so what we see Paul doing, especially here in Titus, is he's actually giving Titus great words of affirmation and theology on how the church should function. And so we are coming off the past couple weeks in Titus 2 and Titus 3, where we have talked um, at length about the doctrine of salvation and also the doctrine of regeneration. And what Paul is about to do is he's actually going to close out his letter to Titus by turning his attention to a topic that is biblical and yet is never discussed in the church today. And that topic is church discipline. You see, for the church, we are to practice church discipline as an act of submission to the Word of God. In fact, in the New Testament, the New Testament itself actually has a lot to say about church discipline. You see, Jesus actually addresses church discipline and talks about how to practice church discipline in great detail in Matthew chapter 18. Paul then picks up on Jesus' theme from Matthew 18, and he speaks to church discipline repeatedly in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians chapter 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, and then also here in Titus chapter 3. You see, there is no aspect of church life in our day that is more neglected than the topic of church discipline. You see, the modern church complete disregard for this teaching and this practice is perhaps the greatest, most visible act of disobedience to the Word of God and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I love what John Drag says in his book, Church Order. He says this of church discipline. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. 
Now, historically speaking, Baptists have always viewed church discipline as an essential mark of the church. In fact, uh, it was the Baptist church that actually elevated this discipline alongside uh, other disciplines like the preaching of the word or the administering of the ordinances for communion. In fact, church discipline can be seen as an essential mark as far back as the Belgic Confession of 1561 and it was even a part of the Anabaptist Church when it was noted in the Schleitheim Confession of 1527. And yet, sadly, in recent years, none of Southern Baptist's most recent confessions have a statement on this particular biblical teaching. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did we get to a place where Bible-believing Christians exercise such a blatant act of disobedience to a clear command of Jesus Christ that is found within the Word of God? Well, I believe there are four reasons, four answers to that question, if you will. First, I believe that as an American evangelical church, we have lost our theological nerve. You see, out of a fear of offending, we have sheepishly lulled ourselves into the false sense of security of silence. In other words, we turn a blind eye to church discipline saying, I didn't see it, I didn't hear it, and therefore I don't need to speak to it. Secondly, we have been overcome with moral compromise. You see, so many churches look and act like the world that we hardly know where to even begin if we were to even practice church discipline according to the word of God. Thirdly, I believe that we have become biblically illiterate. You see, it's like we've become more like Thomas Jefferson with the Jeffersonian Bible. You see, Thomas Jefferson had a Bible, and he would pick and choose what it was that he believed about the Bible. And the parts of the Bible that he didn't like, he simply cut them out of the Bible. Well, we have acted in the same way. You see, as American evangelicals, we pick and choose what it is that we believe, and so we avoid or neglect the hard doctrines found within the Word, like the doctrine of church discipline. Fourthly, I believe that as a church, we have found ourselves in a day and an age where we care more about the crowds. We care more about our traditions and our history, and therefore we don't want to offend. We tell people that Jesus is love, and who are we to judge? And yet we have failed to recognize that a part of loving someone is also a part of practicing discipline, even if it means that it could very well be offensive. You see, here's the reality about being offensive. You only need to read through the word of God one time and you will clearly see that it is filled with offenses that our society today and our culture today would not agree with. So here we are, wrapping up Titus. And what Paul is going to give us in these verses in Titus chapter 3 are what can be called sound words for practicing church discipline. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We are going to begin reading together in verse 9. 
Now, once you have found your place, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word. Again, this is Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now again thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you again for another opportunity that we have to come before you and to be able to sing your word, to read your word, to worship you through the study of your word. And Father, we pray that in the next few moments that we have together, God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for your truth. Lord, we pray that in the next few moments that we'd be able to leave our distractions aside and simply be able to focus on you. We thank you and praise you that you are sovereign God. We thank you for the the doctrines and the practices that you have called us to, to live by, to model, and yes, even to practice in the church. And so God, we pray together that in the next few moments, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, we love you. Again, we say thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us, for it's in your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. Now, as we can clearly see from Titus chapter three, verses nine through 15, God's word itself gives us a model of discipline. Church discipline in and of itself actually provides the way out and the way forward in addressing sin. So as we will see in this passage, this clearly is not the definitive passage on church discipline. However, it does provide a foundation for particular situations where the practice of church discipline was deemed necessary. And so what we're going to see from Paul in Titus chapter 3, verse 9 through 15, is Paul is going to give us five practices of church discipline. Practice number one we can find in verse 9, and it is this, that we as a body of believers should avoid what is foolish. Now, before we look back at this verse, we need to remember and realize that these are actually Paul's final words to Titus in his letter. And so after repeatedly challenging not only Titus, but also the believers themselves to maintain sound doctrine and good works, Paul now closes by telling Titus and the church to value and protect its doctrinal and moral integrity. So Paul, one more time, warns 
warns the church and warns Titus against the false teachers that have made their way to Crete. Now, keep in mind, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul charges the people to be devoted to good works because of the regenerating work of Jesus Christ. And so now we get to verse 9, and Paul opens here with a conjunction and tells the people to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. You see, Paul here is insisting in chapter 3 that believers be focused on the good works for the glory of God and avoid that which is foolish. Now, it's interesting that we use the word avoid here. You see, the word avoid actually translates into the word shun. What we have in the word avoid, or the word shun, if you will, is a word of command calling for a constant and consistent vigilance. In other words, as we look at this passage, we are to read it realizing that we are not to find ourselves listening to foolish controversies or even speaking into foolish controversies. Rather, we are to put a stop to that talk altogether. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't work out our disagreements. This doesn't mean that when we have a disagreement with our brother or sister, we shouldn't confront them on it. Rather, what it does mean is this. If we find ourselves in a conversation where gossip is being spread or rumors are being clearly taught or there is false information or even half-truths, if you will, Paul is teaching that we are not to engage those conversations. So we have to ask ourselves at this point, why? Why should we avoid these foolish conversations and dissensions and quarrels about the law? Well, Paul answers that question by saying because they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, let's just take these in reverse order. By Paul saying that these conversations and these people are worthless, he is literally saying that these conversations are unwise. And so since it's a conversation that is unwise, it is now a conversation that is not worth our time. Now understand this passage in light of Paul's context. You see, Judaizers were infiltrating the church. And so they were trying to add words to the scripture and to the work of our Lord and Savior. They ended up coming into the church and creating fancy allegories and myths based on bad interpretations of biblical genealogies, and they tried to add to add works itself to the doctrine of salvation. Well, we know, according to the teachings of Jesus Christ, that we are not a salvation plus works is what gets you into heaven kind of faith. Rather, we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so going back to chapter 1, verse 11, and then seeing it again here in Titus chapter 3, these Judaizers were tearing apart entire households. They were splitting entire families. And so Paul teaches us that these people are not worth debating. Rather, they should be denounced and then dismissed. Do you see what Paul is saying to Titus and to the local church? 
If there are people within your church, and yes, they do exist. If they existed in the days of Titus on Crete with his church, then guess what? They exist within our churches today. If there are people in the church who are spreading false information about the church or about the church's leadership or about what the word of God says, then those people are to be removed from the body. You see, we need to pay close attention to these words because Paul tells us that they are worthless. Paul then also uses the word unprofitable. You see, when Paul says that that these conversations and these people are unprofitable, he's literally telling us that nothing good comes from their attitude and nothing good comes from their teaching. So Paul tells us to avoid them. And by avoiding them, the goal is to bring light to their error and bring light upon their sin. And so as believers, we are called to avoid the foolish. We are called to avoid those who speak and clearly have no idea what it is that they are saying. Paul is telling us it is not worth the fight. He moves from there into verses chapter 10 or excuse me verses 10 and verse 11 of chapter 3 and he shows us practice number 2 of church discipline which is this that we are to reject those who are divisive. Now what Paul does in these two verses is he actually summarizes the teachings of Jesus Christ on church discipline that are found in Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. Now, Paul is not calling us to be spiritual garbage inspectors, nor is he calling us to be theological watchdogs simply waiting and looking for error. Rather, when it comes to confronting sin, the sin that we confront as believers in Christ is the sin that is public and habitual and serious and is lacking in repentance. You see, when we become aware of a sinning brother or a sinning sister, we are to go to them first individually, according to the words of Christ and hear with the words of Paul. Second, we are to go to them with a witness. And then finally, according to Paul right here, he says we are then to approach them with the whole fellowship of the church. Now notice this. If at any point in the process... Genuine repentance is seen, then the process of discipline stops and the ministry of restoration begins. But here's the sad truth about our churches today. You see, for our churches, because of our lack of knowledge of the Word of God on the teachings of church discipline, we find it easier to excommunicate someone for their sin as opposed to walking them through the process of restoration. In fact, I would argue that there has been times where when repentant believers have come forward in the church seeking discipline, seeking correction and encouragement in the church, instead of walking with them through the process, we'd rather either sweep it under the rug or we'd rather kick them off the campus. We have done so so fast that it makes the Spanish Inquisition with the Roman Catholic Church look like a joke. And the difference is they were actually killing people. 
You see, when it comes to practicing church discipline, we need to be willing to have the hard conversations. And if a brother or sister continues in sin, then we are to bring witnesses. And if they continue in their sin, then we are to bring them before the fellowship of the church. Yet at the same time, if a brother or a sister begins to practice repentance, then out of love for Jesus Christ, for his glory, according to his word, we are to walk with them through restoration. You see, we practice church discipline for the sake of the individual, but we also practice church discipline for the health of the body of Christ. Notice in the Bible, no one in the church is called to be Pontius Pilate. None of us are called to simply wash our hands and walk away. We have work that needs to be done. In fact, I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in, uh, you can call it his essay or a small book, if you will. I think it's one of the most brilliant things he wrote. It's called Life Together. He says these words, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. You see, we have to love one another enough. We have to know the word of God enough to be able to practice church discipline. But let's jump back into our text here in verses 10 and 11. We see the word warning here. Now here is another command meaning to reject. At the same time, you not only see the word warning, but now you see the word division. Now actually the word division in the English literally translates to the word heretic. But in the first century, it meant a person who is quarreling and stirs up factions through erroneous opinions. This is a person or a man determined to go his own way and forms parties and factions within the body. You see, these particular people are the people who desire to stir up division within the church. And so they spread lies based on interpretations of what was heard, and then they make accusations or claims with little to no facts at all. And so Paul says of this person, we are to warn him once, we are to warn him twice, and if there is still no repentance, then he must be rejected. In other words, he is to be removed from the body of Christ. Think about this for a moment. And when we speak of body of Christ, we mean the local church. But when it comes to what we hear and how we interpret it, and then how we speak it moving forward, we need to clearly and carefully think about the words we say. We need to carefully think about who we are saying them to. And yes, at the same time, when people are speaking to us, we need to critically and carefully think about the information we are receiving. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be people who speak the truth. We are to be people who speak the word of God and to speak it with grace. 
We are not to be someone who spreads gossip or accusations or false claims. You see, for the health of the body, for the glory of God, those who speak these accusations, those who make these false claims, if they do not come to repentance, the word clearly teaches that they are to be removed. We then get into verse 11. In verse 11 here, Paul shows us why habitual, public, serious, and unrepentant sinners are to be disciplined. Paul answers the why by saying that these people are dangerous. He calls them warped and sinful. Now, both these words are actually spoken in both the present tense and the perfect tense. So what we have here is we are seeing a man who is living upside down and literally inside out. He is living a life in continuous sin. He is living a life that is separate from the word of God and therefore is separate from God in his life. And so what we begin to see is that sin, through our actions and yes, through our words, sin damages and sin destroys. And so coming back to Paul here in context, he speaks of the man again and says, this man, this, this, this false teacher, he is now self-condemned. Literally, that translates to mean that he is judged down upon himself. So you see, both in action and in attitude, the sinner is without excuse, and therefore by his actions and his words, he now passes judgment upon himself. And so we need to beware of these people because there are times where even these False teachers may try to use scripture in order to justify their sin. So for us as believers, when addressing a brother or a sister in sin, when, a, when addressing a brother or a sister who is making false claims or, or false accusations, with grief and humility, with some of our own self-examination, and yes, even with a broken heart, we are to confront our brother and sister who is in sin, and if necessary, as Scripture teaches, we must shun them. We must be willing to reject them if there is no repentance. It's just as Paul taught the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. He says that we are to turn them over to Satan with the hope and the prayer that the discipline from God, according to Hebrews chapter 12, will bring the sinner to brokenness and to repentance. We have to be willing to have hard conversations with one another. We move from there into verses 12 and verse 13, and we find practice number three of church discipline. 
We see that we are called to follow the leader. Now, upon looking at these verses, we are clearly seeing Paul's final words to Titus. Now, normally, when we come to the closing of a letter, we would generally, as readers, skip right over the closing, thinking that this is just Paul saying, oh, I know this person is with you. Say hello and goodbye. And this person, say hello and goodbye. I know that we love you. We're praying for you. Take care. God bless. And be sure to tip your waitress. And so we breeze right over the closings. But we need to pay careful attention here as the instructions Paul gives to Titus should actually cause us to pause. You see, in the midst of his farewell, Paul manages to amplify his teaching on church discipline. You see, godly leadership that Paul is speaking to here is a must if a church is to carry out the ministry of church discipline. You see, when it comes to church discipline, there can be no place for lone ranger pastors or lone ranger elders or lone ranger leaders who try to tackle the issue on on their own. So strong leadership is needed within the church. Strong leadership is needed within the elders and within the laity, and it should be present and active and visible within the life of the church. Now, we see this when Paul addresses uh, Titus by telling him to send Artemis, who, truthfully, we know nothing about, and Tychicus, who we know quite a bit about. He tells us that he is sending them. Now, Tychicus, we know from Acts chapter 20, was Paul's traveling companion. In Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 4, we see that he is called a dear brother and a faithful servant of the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, that we're eventually going to get to, we see that he is a personal representative to the churches. So clearly we know that both of these men were fully capable of fulfilling Paul's instructions from Titus chapter 3, verse Verses 10 and 11. Now, the goal for sending these men was to free up Titus so that he could go to Paul at Nicopolis, which is where Paul was planning to spend the winter. Now, Paul's goal by spending the winter there was to rest, to strategize, and then to spend time with Titus, his dearly loved son in the Lord. But in order for Titus to be able to make the journey, Paul had to send godly spiritual reinforcements who could handle any of the troublemakers if more were to arise in the church on the island of Crete. So this would then free Titus up so he could then set aside his work and ultimately move ahead in the ministry that God would call him to and as we will soon see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, would ultimately take him to Dalmatia. You see, leaders are key to church discipline. Lay leaders are key to church discipline. Elders, as we have already discussed, are key to church discipline discipline. We need strong leaders. We move from there into verse 13. Paul here teaches Titus that church discipline should not be the primary focal point of a church's ministry. In fact, we should not neglect other activities of the church because of church discipline's necessity and practice. Rather, when it came to Paul and speaking of church discipline, he saw that church discipline was actually a natural component woven into the very fabric of the church. 
It is to be a painful part of the fabric, but it is an essential aspect of Christian discipleship. Now notice this. Paul then instructs Titus on the principles of church discipline in this passage, and yet here in verses 12 and 13, he shows us at the same time we are to give attention to the other ministries that need to be carried out within the church. Now, Paul does this um, by telling Titus to now send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Now, apparently, no one knew until this particular point that both of those men were on the island of Crete with Titus. And they needed to continue on with the mission and the ministry that they were called to as well. So what Paul is showing us by telling Titus to send these men is he is showing us that church discipline is to be a natural dimension of the multifaceted ministry of the church life. In other words, church discipline is not supposed to take precedence over all the other ministries in the church. And yet at the same time, church discipline should not be an anomaly. That then leads us to practice number four in verse 14 where Paul reminds Titus and the church that we are to maintain good works. Now, if you haven't picked up on it yet by now in Titus 1 and 2 and now in 3, obviously we have a reoccurring theme throughout Titus. Paul here reminds Titus that the believers are to devote themselves to discipleship and to devote themselves to a lifestyle of good works. Again, not because we need it for salvation, but because it is our response to Jesus Christ because of salvation that is found in him. In other words, good works should be our habit of life. Good works is the norm. It should not be the exception. And so here in verse 14, we see that church discipline is actually considered a good work, according to Paul. You see, church discipline bears the fruit of the glory of God. It reveals love for the sinner. It shows restoration of those who are way, wayward. It allows us to practice the purity and to maintain the purity of the church. And it also provides protection of the fellowship and therefore is now a witness to the world. You see, as believers in Christ... We proclaim that through church discipline, we proclaim that God-honoring love both cares and confronts. We proclaim that God-honoring love can be tender and, yes, at the same time, must also be tough. Now, I love what Charles Finney says at this point. He says that according to this passage, if you see your neighbor sin and you pass by and you neglect to reprove him, it is as cruel as if you should see his house on fire and pass by and not warn him. You see, the goal for church discipline is correction. 
The goal for discipline is restoration. Good works found in church discipline meets the urgent needs of the individual believers. Paul then moves from there into verse 15, which is where we find practice number five of church discipline. You see, we must enlist the faithful. Here in the final verse, we see Paul's farewell statement from one set of friends to another set of friends, from one part of the family of Christ to another part of the family of Christ. And we find two words of wisdom that dominate this verse, and that is love and grace. You see, Paul knew and understood all too well the challenges that Titus was facing. Paul and those with him wanted Titus to know that they understood his pain, they understood his trials, they understood his frustrations and his concerns, and so they wanted him to know that they cared, that they stood with him, and they were on his side. And so Titus would have read these words from Paul and known in this moment he was not alone. You see, when we confront a brother or sister who is in sin or when we are confronted because of our sin we need to remember that we are a part of the family of God and so we do not stand alone the faithful should be around us the faithful should be cheering us on, either for our boldness in love or for the hope of seeing a brother or sister restored in Christ. But you see, Paul wasn't done there. He then shared words of comfort to Titus when he wrote his very last sentence, and he says, grace be with you all. You see, Paul knew and understood that only God's grace would give us balance. God's grace is what gives us self-control. God's grace is what gives us wisdom. It gives us endurance. And so by God's grace and his glory, we will be equipped to stand and to serve. You see, our battles whether externally with the world or internally within the church. Our battles are never hopeless as long as the battles we fight are the Lord's. We fight by his grace. We fight because of his glory. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we practice church discipline? Why should we practice church discipline? Well, one of my favorite heroes of the faith currently, Mark Dever, wrote in Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. In speaking of church discipline, he said, it is for the good of the person disciplined. It is for the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin. It is for the health of the church as a whole. It is for the corporate witness of the church and for the glory of God as we reflect on his holiness. 
You see, again, we practice church discipline in submission to the word of God. And so we need to put the practice of church discipline back into the church. We need to teach what the Bible says about discipline and then implement church discipline when necessary, lovingly, wisely, gently, and slowly. You see, the goal, again, of church discipline is to lovingly point people to the visible errors of their ways, recognizing that we all have logs within our own eyes and understanding that church discipline, its purpose is to lovingly restore a brother and sister back into fellowship with the local body. Will it be painful? Yes, absolutely. Should it be avoided? No. Why? Because it is necessary. You see, overlooking sin is not gracious. It is, in fact, dangerous. It's as Thomas Oden said, only those who take sin seriously take forgiveness seriously. And the reality is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did both. And so must we. So my prayer is that we would faithfully follow the word of God on church discipline in a culture that is trying to teach us and tell us that we should simply cancel one another out. Let us show them how to correct with love, with grace, and with restoration by the grace of God for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this time. And Lord, we thank you for this morning and for the opportunity that we have had to enjoy fellowship with one another, to enjoy worship together with one another. Father, we praise you that we are even able to gather in this place, to be able to call upon your name to be able to open our Bibles, to sing of you, to study your word. What an incredible gift. God, we ask now, forgive us of our oversight. Forgive us of where we have not put the fullness of your word in practice. Father, we, we are wretched sinners in need of a Savior. Father, if there are sins in our life now that only we know about, but you, we recognize that you know about them, Father, help us to, to get them right right now, to lay them at your feet. Father, help us to understand that this faith journey that we're on, this, this process of sanctification, Lord, you, you never said it would be easy. And so, Father, I pray that we would embrace the challenges, embrace the hurts, the frustrations, the hardships, knowing that it is by your grace that we are sustained.
So Father, give us the boldness to lay our own sins at your feet and walk away from them. Father, at the same time, for brothers and sisters who we know, who we love, who are family, that are around us, those who are, who are in sin, who may be making false claims or false accusations against the church, against you, against the word. Father, give us the boldness to lovingly call them out. Let us not neglect what you have called us to. And God, we pray that through our actions, through our words, through our worship, and yes, during the moments where we have to practice church discipline, Father, we pray that your grace would reign supreme and through it all that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. Again, we say thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to do our time of reflection a little bit differently today. Normally, we pause for a few moments and allow you to meditate and pray on the word. But what we want to do is we want to end Titus the way we started it, which was a full reading of the letter of Titus. So at this time, I'm going to ask Pastor Corey to come up. And he's going to close out our time by reading through the entirety of this letter so we can hear it again all in one beautiful context. So now that we've studied it, really tune into it, listen to these words. Let's hear them together as we worship through the reading of Titus in its entirety. And then at that point, uh, Pastor Corey and his team will close out our service together. The letter of Paul to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. 
They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women. Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about you. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These, are thing, these things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid a foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all.